take my title from verse 18 of this same chapter where Paul writes, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation. Now this is the third section in Paul's defense of his ministry. He's defending his integrity. Integrity meaning his honesty, his sincerity. In chapter 6 he would say, O Corinthians, our mouths are open unto you, our hearts are enlarged. Which means we are being transparent. We're being open. We're being honest. We're being sincere with you. You remember as we started to look at what's called the great digression in this book, where Paul, although he would rather not, defends his ministry and his integrity for the sake of the church, for their good against some of those in the church, some outside, and some of those that many call are intruders into Corinth, the false teachers who are criticizing him. He feels bound for the sake of the church to speak as he does. So first, the first section we saw, he described his ministry as a New Testament ministry, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And then you remember he contrasted the glory of the Mosaic Age, which was much lesser, with the superior glory of the New Covenant Age and the ministry Paul had in the New Covenant. That's the age we live in. The old covenant, not bad, but gone. It's history, as we would say. It's no longer in effect. The new covenant is. The second section, Paul then described his ministry in terms of his apostolic suffering. That this ministry was taking place through his suffering where the power of the gospel and the treasure would be seen through the weakness of his sufferings. And you remember he said in the fourth chapter... Uh, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus so that the life also of Jesus might be manifest in our bodies. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. So Paul's apostolic suffering, which was despised largely by these critics, Paul says that's how the glory is seen, through weakness, through baseness. And so God uses weakness to display His glory through the church and through our sufferings like Paul, although for different reasons, yet we all go through suffering. And then he ended that section with how his affliction was serving to work for him a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory while he was looking for mortality to be clothed or swallowed up with life. He was looking toward the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, beginning in verse 11... Paul describes in this third section all the way through chapter 6, verse 10, which includes partly some more of his suffering, he's looking at his integrity in the ministry as it relates to the ministry of reconciliation. This is what Paul is about. This is what Paul is doing in his evangelism and with the church. He's calling the church at Corinth to be reconciled to God. So as you look at this third section, which we'll not finished today. It may take us two or three messages to get to verse 10. We look at first the instruments of reconciliation. Who are the instruments? We look at the method of reconciliation. And then we'll look today, all that we'll have time for, is the power of reconciliation. What is it that drives Paul about this message? What is it that Paul will say 
was impelling or constraining him, he would tell us in verse 14. So there's three things we'll try to look at this morning. First, the instruments, and Paul, of course, says in our text, and through the latter part of this chapter, that it's, it's us. God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, he could be referring exclusively to the official apostolic ministry or those ministers that travel with him, but I think we look at the word reconciliation, it goes beyond that. I think God has given the church the ministry of reconciliation. He's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Reconciliation means to receive into favor or to return unto favor. Now, the only irreconcilable difference is not on the part of God, but is on the part of sinners upon man. So God takes the initiative to receive sinners into favor with Himself by grace, and Paul is an instrument of that reconciliation because God is doing it by means of the Word or the ministry He's given us to do so. But the word reconciled means to return into favor. So Paul is speaking to reconciled sinners to be reconciled. He would say in chapter 6, verse 1, We then as workers together with Him, that is God, we beseech you, we implore you also, that you receive not the grace of God in vain. Now he's saying that largely to a group of people that have already been reconciled to God. They're in Christ. But it's a relationship term that is telling us the forgiven need more forgiveness. The reconciled need to be reconciled again and again and to be returned, restored into the favor of God. The delivered need deliverance. The rescued need rescuing. And so Paul is calling on a church that's been reconciled to stay in the reconciling graces of God. And Paul is bringing the ministry of reconciliation back to the same church that's received it in order that they would stay in the grace of God and not receive it in a vain way. So I could say today that although Paul is using a lot of autobiographical language concerning his own ministry, yet today the church has been posited, we've, we've been committed with the ministry of reconciliation. And that will impact then how we speak and act to one another. Paul would say in verse 20, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. Why? Because he's an instrument in the hands of God with the ministry of reconciliation. He's an instrument with the word of reconciliation, verse 19. So the conclusion he draws, Now then, therefore, we are ambassadors. And what is Paul doing as an ambassador? As though God did beseech you, through us, because that's what God is doing. He is parakaleo, He's calling, exhorting sinners through the instruments of this ministry to do what? Be reconciled to God. And that's how God is working today through people, instruments, the church, in an evangelistic way, yes, to the world, but also to one another. We are bringing the word of reconciliation to one another in our relationships so that we encourage, exhort, and call one another to stay in the grace of God, 
to continue to be in God's grace in a reconciled way through forgiveness and discipleship and, yes, fellowship groups and all the way that we try to minister the Word of God to one another. So I, I want you to see this very much, although Paul is speaking about his own ministry and his integrity, very much a ministry for you, a ministry for the church. Not an official ministry, but the way we do ministry to one another as we are as ambassadors. An ambassador in that day was not to a democracy or to a president. It was a monarch. Like ambassadors to Caesar. The monarch is the king. It's his word. It's his will. And yes, it's his way. And so as ambassadors, we die to our words, our wills, and our ways, and what we're bringing to the table to one another. What we bring to the table of conflict, we bring to the table of discipleship, what we bring to the table of fellowship groups and worship, we bring ministry of reconciliation. We bring God's Word to one another, and in that way we're speaking on behalf of King Jesus. We are just ambassadors. When we try to step out of the role of ambassadors, because we all just can't wait to be kings, and that was part of the problem here at Corinth. They thought they were living as kings today. Well, what then do you bring to the table? You bring your will. You bring what you want to people. You bring what you want to your wife and your husband. You bring your way to the table. And then you do everything within your power to get your way relationally. Paul is having conflict with this church. But he reminds himself and the church, he's not the king. He's an ambassador, and that keeps him bringing this ministry and this word to the church in a way that's going to glorify God and be for the good of the church as he does what? He prays them in Christ's stead, on behalf of Christ, with Christ's word, be reconciled to God. Do not receive grace in vain. So you and I are instruments, number one, but look now at the method And we see this beginning in verse 11 where Paul says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, and that could be translated the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. We persuade men. And of course, we persuade with the word of reconciliation. See, in this ministry, we're persuading people. And the word persuade means to seek to win people. That's what we want to do as a church. We want to win people again evangelistically. We want to win them to the Lord. Can we say it that way? I think Paul would say it that way. Now think of the logic of verse 18. All things are of God who hath reconciled us to Himself by Jesus Christ. The aim of reconciliation is the word Himself. He's receiving sinners to Himself by Jesus Christ. How is He doing it? and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. He's doing it through ministry. What is that ministry? Verse 19. He's committed to us the word of reconciliation. So therefore, Paul sees himself as an instrument whereby he's seeking to persuade men 
to be reconciled to God with God's own instrument and method of reconciliation, which is the message of the cross. That's very important. See, it's still true that what we seek to persuade men with, we are ultimately going to persuade men to. And I take again the example of the prosperity gospel. That's one of the problems with the prosperity gospel. What, if we use that gospel, are we winning men to? Prosperity. That's what we're all after. God aims to bless your life. God has a wonderful plan for your life. And it's always good as we define it. It's always maybe a little bit of trouble. But at the end, there is a a rainbow with a pot of gold of some kind in it for you. See, if we persuade men with something other than the message and the words of God as ambassadors, whatever creativity we use, whatever we bring in because we really want to persuade people, we really want to win them over, don't we? What happens? We win them to the very thing we're using to persuade them. Now, what happens when you stay with the word of reconciliation, the word about Christ? Then you win them to the word of Christ. So it's incumbent upon us as a church to stay with the commands of God, what God tells us about the worship of God and the methods of God and the word of God, whatever the Bible tells us in terms of winning sinners that we stay with the message of reconciliation because we want to win them not to us, But ambassadors, we want to win them to Christ. Jesus himself made this very clear. If we would say anybody came to win sinners, would it not be Jesus? Would anybody deny that he came to just push people away and say, you know, I want as few people as I can to gather unto me. The Lord was here to win and to save sinners. But listen to these shocking words in Luke 14.25. There was a great multitude gathered unto him, and he turned and said unto them. Now, if you ever wanted to win people, here is the time. Could you imagine a great multitude of people, and they were ready to listen to whatever you said about Jesus. Whatever it is, say on. And this great multitude was there for that purpose. Jesus turned and said to me, If any man will come to me, he must hate his father, his mother, his brother, his sister, his brethren, yea, and his own life also. For you cannot be my disciple. That's not very winsome. That's not very persuasive. What is Jesus saying? You must count everything loss to be a disciple. Your prosperity, your family ties, your job, your friends, everything must be put in the bucket of loss right from the get-go, right from the outset, if you want to be my follower because you're going to lose a lot. That's not very persuasive. Unless you ask the question, what on earth do I gain if I'm losing all that? Well, Jesus said, you're following me. See, beloved, the gain by which we use to persuade people is not our creativity. It's not what we can give them. It's not what we can do. It's not how dynamic we can be. It's not how funny I can be. It is the Word of Christ because He is it. 
And that's what the Holy Spirit uses to persuade men. He uses the word of reconciliation through the ministry of reconciliation, and we are ambassadors because God is through us. He's calling sinners to be reconciled to Himself through the Word of God. So while when you look at us, I mean, we're a pretty motley crew, aren't we? I mean, there's just not a lot special here. I'm sorry. I mean, look at me. We just don't have a lot to offer. That's why it's so important to be so radically word-centered. That's all we offer, friend. That's it. We disciple with the Word. We fellowship with the Word. We pray with the Word. We preach the Word. We sing the Word. It's the Word because it's the Word of reconciliation. We don't have creativity. I mean, there may, may be some here, but it just doesn't come out here, does it? I'm not a creative guy. All we have is Christ. All I have is Christ. And all I have is His Word. Is that sufficient for you? Well, it's not for a lot of people. So we seek to persuade men as ambassadors, and therefore we're persuading one another, aren't we? It's not just evangelism, it is. But Paul is trying to persuade the church at Corinth. He is made manifest to God in verse 11. He trust. He's being made manifest to their conscience. He's being open. He's saying all that he's saying because he's, he's expecting that their own conscience will see he's a man of integrity. And he uses the Word of God, unlike the false teachers who are using everything else because they glory in appearance and not in heart. They're saying Paul is beside himself. He's a madman for various reasons. So Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. And so in our ministry to one another and to the world, we need to be word-centered. We need to keep bringing to the table to one another what we really, really need, the words of Jesus. You don't need my intellect. I don't have any. You don't need my words. What you and I need from one another is the word of reconciliation, a restoration, a continual being restored into the favor and graces of God. Amen? Look at the motivation of why Paul persuades men. Knowing, therefore, the terror or fear of the Lord, we persuade men. The participle, knowing, points back to verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that we might receive what we've done in our body, according to that which we have done, whether it be good or evil, knowing, participle, the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. How is that motivating? See, the fear of the Lord keeps Paul on track with the Word. It keeps him from moving right or left. It keeps him from the glory of men or the glory of success, or the glory of applause, or the glory of reputation. It keeps him central to the message because he's motivated by the fear of the Lord. Now when we see a text like verse 10, it automatically produces tension, right? I mean, it does for me. Listen to it again. You must appear before the judgment seat of Christ 
Why? That you might receive what you've done in your body. According to that which you've done. On what standard? Whether it's good or bad. Knowing the fear of the Lord. Now, there are a few ways we can solve this tension. Biblical tension means there's two texts that say exactly the opposite thing, so it looks like, and it causes us tension. First, we can ignore the text and act like it doesn't exist. We know that that's not right. We can say, well, I'm just not going to read that text. I'm just going to pass over it. Then it won't have the proper impact in your life that it had on Paul's. What was the impact? He keeps persuading. Why? Because he fears God. Why? Because he'll appear before the judgment seat. You lose that. Number two, we can say, well, that's not for the Christian. Who are the people of judgment? We must all. Church of Corinth, Paul, you and me will stand before the Bema seat of Christ. Judgment seat, remember Pilate in John 19, when he ascended the judgment seat and sat down? It was a raised platform, a, a tribune, a place of, everybody knew it was a place of rendering a verdict. It was called the pavement, Gabbatha. It was inlaid with a mosaic under the chair. He sat on the chair. Now he's about to decide something. Now the irony there is the one he's judging ultimately is now the judge. It's the judgment seat, not of Pilate, but of Christ, for which we will all stand before. Somebody then says, well, the way I saw the tension is that's just about here in time. Well, that won't work either because it's what you've done in your body and you're still doing things in your body. See, this is at death. We will appear at death at the resurrection. You will appear in your body and then you'll get everything you've done. Whether you've done good or bad. Is anybody feeling tension? See? Now, that we need to solve the tension because we're either going to run for the hills like Isaiah 2 says or we're going to find rest when we leave the tension exactly where it is. That's how you solve it. You leave it, but you find rest in it. And so that's what we want to do, because this is how Paul is motivated. Okay. What is the purpose of this judgment? It's, it's to make some decision. That's what judgment is about. Now here's the tension, or what appears to be exactly the opposite things being said. We know that our entrance into heaven is not according to our deeds, whether good or bad. We, we are certain about that, right? Ephesians 2.8, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works. So, that seems to be the opposite of what's being said here. Not of works, lest any man should boast. And Romans 3.20, Therefore shall no flesh be justified, in His sight by what they do by deeds, but because the law is the knowledge of sin. No flesh is right with God by what they do, good or bad. No one. But then there are a number of texts that tell us emphatically that God is going to render to you according to your works. Romans 2.5 But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, your impenitent heart, talking to the Jews, Treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who this text says is Christ. It's God's judgment through Him, who will render, who will pay back to every man 
according to their deeds. To them who through in patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. What's the upshot? They live forever with God. But to them who are contentions and obey not the truth, but obey unrighteousness, tribulation, and wrath upon every man that doeth evil, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And that's not the only text in the Bible that says that. Now you see the tension. They appear to be saying exactly the opposite thing. How then does Paul, in a right view of God, the fear of the Lord, he keeps the tension there because it's persuading him, but he finds rest. He finds rest. The first thing to remember is the one doing the judging is your Savior. That just brings rest, doesn't it? The one that's going to judge Paul is the one that loved him and gave himself for it. It's the one that secured his salvation. Paul would say in 2 Timothy chapter 4, in the 8th verse, after saying, I have fought a good fight, I have kept the faith, I have finished my course. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me on that day, and not only me, but all those that love his appearing. Why would you love the appearing of a righteous judge? Imagine, you're sitting in a courtroom. And here comes a righteous judge and ascends the bench. That's a raised platform. That's a tribune. That's a place of judgment. And you just start quaking. Only if you know the judge is your friend. And the judge is not going to discount the law. The judge is the one who kept the law perfectly on your behalf. Every deed done bad has been paid for by the blood of Christ. And that man on the stand is your Savior. And the father of that man is your father. So that's the first place we find rest. But we can't remove the tension by saying, therefore, this judgment doesn't happen. The way we keep the tension and find the rest in Christ is to remember that Judgment is not for destination purposes. It's for demonstration. God is going to vindicate His righteousness by demonstrating to all of humanity who belongs to Him. And who belongs to Him? Those who in patient continuance or perseverance, they just keep doing well. Notice He doesn't say how much well-doing. There's no quantity. It just, they just kept going. Why? Because the preserving grace of God caused them to persevere by working through them both to will and to do of His good pleasure. See, works are not the cause of salvation, but they're the fruit of salvation. And God is going to look at the fruit and judge it and say, those are mine. And look at how my grace worked through them to keep them going. Now, he didn't say, well... You've got this much, you've got this much. It's just, here are the people of faith. Because faith without works is what? It's dead. Faith that produces no amount of fruit is an unsaved person. So God is going to render judgment through Christ of His own grace in your life that just worked itself out in deeds, just doing good, right? 
You don't even remember the good He's worked in your life. Probably 10 years ago, 15. You, he remembers. And here you are today. And He's going to keep working in your life to produce fruit. Because that's the fruit that's going to demonstrate through your perseverance and well-doing that God was in you, that God was working in you, and that through faith it produced love. And love is the fruit of salvation. And where there's no love, there is no salvation. And so there'll be those that'll be judged according to their works, and it's just all bad. There's nothing good there because they don't belong to Jesus Christ. So we keep that balanced view, seeing the tension, but finding rest, so that the tension with the rest does what? It causes us to look at the judgment and be reminded that Jesus is not there, raised from the dead. So you can live a life of indifference and aimlessness. But you can do what? Serve the Lord. So the upshot and the way the tension is removed is, beloved, start serving the Lord. Start doing good. Start bearing the fruit of love by resting in Jesus and His love for you and all that He is for us And then the judgment day will have its proper healthy effect on us, not as we ignore it, not as we say that's not for us, but as we know the fear of the Lord. That's a high view of God standing in awe of Him, but knowing He's our Father, so that we do what? We persuade, we serve, we keep going in well-doing. Not without sin, not without confession, not without repentance, but with the fruit of love, because your Father is producing that in you. So Paul knows the fear of the Lord, and that fear, which causes him to want to please God, his Father, it causes him to want to honor the death of Christ, it causes him to want Jesus to say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with my grace, and it's produced love in your life. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. See, that's all contained in the final judgment. So it's not a day of fear and terror, and perhaps the KJV used terror because they were uh, leaning to the side of those who only have bad and no fruit that come from faith. But knowing the fear of the Lord, a healthy fear of God, and looking at the judgment, we rest in Jesus and we remember He's there to show That His death was not just to let you go on being yourself. It's so that we could be what? Zealous of good works. See, He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all iniquity and to purify unto Himself a people zealous of good works. The very good works which He'll judge and say, those are my people. They're the ones that love me. Because I loved them first. Number two. Or three, if you're counting better than I am. We see the instruments. We are all instruments. We see the method is persuasion. He's beseeching. He's imploring. He's persistent. He's urgent because of the motive of the fear of the Lord. Now we see the power of reconciliation. And we'll probably spend the remainder of our time here. The power is in verse 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. 
and that He died for all, that they which live should not henceforth no longer live unto themselves, but unto Him which died for them and rose again. So we focus our attention on verse 14. The power of reconciliation is the love of Christ that constrains Paul. The word constrain means to impel, to drive, to force. Now some people look at this text and say, yes, the love Paul had for Jesus just kept him moving forward. I don't think that'll work. I mean, it'll work in the original language. A genitive case can be objective or subjective. It can be Paul's love for Christ or Christ's love for Paul. But I don't think it works to say Paul's passion, his, his drive, his being impelled forward was owing to his love for Christ. Would you like that to be the case? Just think about your last week. Just go back to last week. How much of your love for Christ was moving you forward with a passion in the ministry of reconciliation? I don't want to go there, personally. I don't think you do either. How much serving did you do this past week like Paul? Or maybe how many times you had the opportunity to say, I just don't feel like it. I got things to do. I've got comforts and conveniences. I'm warm in my bed or in my house. And, you know, I think somebody else could do it this time. It's not much passion, is it? How often do we have times where we experience our love for Christ is strong, but then shortly after it's, it's cold as an iceberg. It's, it's, it's flat. Sometimes we feel like Elijah, we could stand against 450 prophets of Baal and then the fire from heaven would come and then shortly after we're hiding under a juniper tree, all depressed and cast out. Woe is me. I don't think Paul meant here that what moved him forward was his love for Jesus. Because if we all looked in the mirror, in our service, our attendance at church, you know, our anticipation to get here on time. So I can't wait to sing and be part of this. And our, our anticipation to serve next week, probably not that compelling or driving, is it? But if we, like Paul, can look at it from the other way around and see it's the love of Jesus for Paul that stirred him and that moved him, So that Paul would say, alas, and did my Savior die for such a worm as I? Paul kept before his mind the amazing reality that Christ died for him. It never got routine for Paul. It never was another sermon that felt like, yeah, did we just hear this again? And yet we know that kind of thing. It gripped him that Christ would actually die for a blasphemer, an injurious man like him, a persecutor of the church. And so when Paul says, the love of Christ constrains me, he means the power of reconciliation, the power that keeps his ministry going, the power that keeps bringing the word to the table in Paul's life is the power of Christ's love for him. He loves me. He loves me. 
He loves me, this I know. We didn't sing, I love you. Now that would be true, is it not? I love you, this I know. I hope you can say that. But that won't get you very far. It probably won't get you through next week. No, he loves me. This is the logic of Mary and Martha. In John chapter 11, when Lazarus is sick unto death, he's going down quickly. And they send word to Jesus. They know Jesus can help. And so what they didn't say is, Lord, the one that has so loved you is sick. Implying what? Could you come back and heal him? Lazarus has been such a committed follower. He's been so zealous for the truth. He has been committed to your cause. He never misses a Sunday. He's always in his Bible. He's always praying. He's always seeking you. Lord, the one that loves you, come heal him. They know that won't work. I'm I'm sure at least part of that was true, but do you have a brother or sister? Do you know your brother and sister? Would you want to plead on behalf of your brother and sister like that? Lord, my brother, boy, he loves you. Could you come? Scratch that. They say, Lord, the one that you love is sick. Wow. They pin it all on the steadfast, loving kindness of Jesus for Lazarus. His committed, unwavering, uh, immovable love for Lazarus said, Lord, on that basis, will you come? And he came in his way. He came, and he'll, he'll always come for his purposes in his way. Because the love that Christ has for Paul is what impelled Paul. The word impel, like a centrifugal pump, has an impeller. And the way that works is as the impeller moves, it draws liquid into the inlet pipe and forces it out the outlet. See, the impeller is Jesus' love. It draws Paul into that love and so delights and satisfies him that it forces out of Paul's life what? Ministry, service, fruit to the glory of God's name. But what is the content that Paul wants us to see about the love of Christ that impelled him, that moved him, that kept stirring him, that kept moving him? It's found in these words, because we thus judge or we conclude that if or since one died for all, then were all dead. Now this is a very simplistic statement, but I want you to see what Paul is saying here. With two words, he's giving us the content of Christ's love. In the word died and the word for. Died? Speaks of what? Penalty. We know in the Bible, death is punitive. For the wages of sin is what? Eternal death. So the first thing in the love of Christ is penalty. Or we use the word penal, which means punitive. It's punitive. Death? Why did Jesus die? Well, He was being punished. Who was He being punished for? For God had made him to be sin for us. Death is penalty, but for is not the typical word gar, which means because, it's huper. It's a beautiful word. It means on behalf of. On behalf of. What amazed Paul that Jesus suffered the penalty of death on behalf of all. Now, what does that mean? 
I want to show you that if we lose particular redemption, we lose penal substitution. Died in four is substitutionary atonement. On behalf of sinners, that means in their place, on behalf of them, he suffered their penalty, penal substitution. If it's not particular for a specific group of people, we lose the atonement. I want to show you that. First of all, the actual wording perhaps should be or could be stated, since one died for all, all died, instead of all were dead. Four reasons why I say that. Number one, the original language says that the all died. It literally says, if one died for all, the all died. That's the first reason. So I'm, I'm standing on the original inspired language that says, that's the way it can be translated, and that's going to make more sense. I want to show you. Secondly, the word then means consequently or as a result. Now, the death of Christ did not result in us becoming dead spiritually. That won't work. Adam did that. So if we say, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then all were dead spiritually, we know he's not talking about physical. That won't work because Jesus' death didn't procure our spiritual death. Adam did that. In Adam, we all died spiritually. That's the second reason. The third reason is the aorist tense with the three times the word died is used. Died, dead, died. All pointing to a past tense, all pointing to an event where this took place. And then fourthly, and probably the least reason, least reason every other translation translates it died. That's the least reason. But that's a reason also. Now, the meaning can be the same with the way the KJV translates it because all were dead means all died in Jesus when He died. That's what Paul is saying. The fact that the all, whoever they are, are united to Christ in His death. This is the message of penal substitution and particular redemption. That's how they work together. So there are three ways or aspects of our union with Christ. One is eternal union. God has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. God has always counted people as being in Christ forever. Not literally were we there, but in the mind and purpose of God, we've been put attached to Christ in His mind and purpose forever. There has never been a moment in eternal history where the chosen of God were not in Christ. That's called eternal union. For of God are you in Christ Jesus, in Him. Second, historical redemption. Jesus becomes a man. He goes to the cross. Now, historically, in the event of the cross, the once for all accomplished task of redemption was for all that died when he died. That's what Paul is saying. When he died and suffered the penalty, those that are in Christ died and suffered it with him. He did it on their behalf. When he was buried, they were buried with him. God counted them buried in Christ. And when he rose from the dead, what did God count them? Right with him. It was counted. Done. Now notice again, 
verse 19, to wit, this is the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. This is highly important. Who was He not imputing it or charging it to? All those eternally in Christ, all those that died when He died. If one died for all, then all died when He died. And what does that mean? God was not laying it to their charge. To whom? The particular people for whom whom Christ died. Now, if that's not true, we've got a colossal problem. Think about it. What does that mean? Well, it means God is going to have to change His mind at some point, isn't it? When I was in the world reconciling you to myself, I did not charge your sins to you, but now I will. That's double jeopardy. If God does that, beloved, He's not right. The text says, not laying it to their charge. Why? They were in Him. Accomplished. Done. It's over. God has received the sacrifice. Your faith does not complete redemption. It only receives what has already been done. God is in a conundrum. If He says, look, I was not all those that were in Christ, that I put in Christ, I was not charging their trespasses, but now, you know what? I think I will. That's what universal redemption does. The substitutionary atonement falls apart. Because who was He a substitute for? For those whom God was not imputing their trespasses. You can see how crucial it is that we keep the two connected. Furthermore, if Jesus died for them and finished the work for them, then whatever He accomplished has to be undone for them. Right? Did Christ in reality accomplish something? Did God receive it? He did. And that's what Paul is glorying in. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who are the elect? Those that are in Christ. That when He died, they died with Him. So that everything that He accomplished was for them. Complete. Done. He said, it is finished. Not, I've made a way. It's done. It's over. So if God decides then to charge or impute their trespasses unto them, when He precisely says He wasn't, then God is not true. He's not. We don't know how to take God. I mean, is He or is He not? The way substitutionary atonement works is by particular redemption. And so Paul says, the love of Christ actually rescued him. And that's the confidence we have, beloved. That God is not changing his mind. That on the day of atonement, when Christ died for your sins, God received the payment. And it was finished and completed. Now the third union that we see in the Bible is existential. Which means what? To exist or experience it. 
You see, the redemption that was accomplished must be applied. It must be, and it will be, to every person that died in Christ when He died. They will experience it through the gospel, and they will be brought to what? Eternal salvation through Christ. Because Christ is a victor. He will accomplish everything that the Father sent Him to do. And what is the will of the Father? That all they have given me, I should lose nothing. I won't change my mind. The trespasses that were charged to me, I have paid for it. And I will raise them up again the last day. Whom were given, those He died, those He will have. And Paul glories in the reality that Christ's love came to Him. And He judged it this way. That since one died for all, who are the all? All those that died in Him and all those that God did not and was not imputing their trespasses to them. And then what happens? By becoming a new creature, redemption is applied and we receive the finished work. We receive it. We don't do the finished work. How would you receive something and think, I I hope he finished it. Why would faith receive something that says, well, he died, what's going to complete the work? Oh, my faith will complete it. Never. It's done. We are receiving a finished, completed work proven by his resurrection. He was raised for our justification. The only question you need to ask yourself now is, have I received it? Have I embraced the love of Jesus for me? Because God's hands are open to all sinners. There is no one on the earth for which we would conclude Jesus didn't die for them. Not one. Why is that? You just said particular redemption. Because we don't know until the final judgment. So every person is a candidate for the ministry of reconciliation without question and without exception. So the thing you ask yourself is, have I received the love of Christ Jesus? Have I embraced the cross? Do I see the love of God in Christ in giving His life for me personally? Which brings us now to the impact of this love that Paul will say, here's the existential part of redemption when it's applied. Verse 15, And that He died for all that died in Him, so that they which live should not what? Henceforth live unto themselves, but unto Him which died for them. Who is that? The all that were in Him. He died for them and rose again. The application of redemption is now we no longer live for ourselves. That is going to happen for every person that God put in Christ. The question is then, how are you living? Is that true of you? See, this redemption can only be claimed by faith that works itself out in a transformation that is struggling against sin. It's fighting it. Sin's no longer at home. Sin's no longer my love. I I still do it. I'm still a sinner, but I'm fighting it because now I'm living for King Jesus. 
who loved me. Alas, he loved me. Can you believe it? A worthless, rotten, worm, vile sinner like me, like you, like Paul of all people. And what happened to Paul? When redemption came, it changed him forever. Beloved, have you been changed? We're going to stop here and pick up that point next time. Have you been changed by the love of Jesus Christ? Not have you been made perfect, not that you have no sin, but have you experienced a, a transformation where you know, if I can say anything else, I love Jesus because He loved me, and I want now to commit my life all to Him, to live for His pleasure and no longer for my own, to live for His glory as the King and not for my own kingdom, my own way and my own will. Will. If you haven't done that, today is the day of salvation. It's today. Why would you wait? Come to Jesus Christ who loves you and gave himself for you and live for the joy and the pleasure and the eternity that he purchased for you because he wanted you to be with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. We are amazed. We want to stand amazed again in the presence of Jesus Christ. We want to be amazed with your grace all over again. We confess we have drawn, become very cold. We so often live for ourselves, Lord. We so often are captivated by what the world speaks to us rather than being so captivated by your undeserved love to us that we're just easily moved, Lord, we confess it. We need you. We need the ministry of reconciliation. We need to return to you, Lord. We need as ransomed sinners to return to Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, you would use this message this morning to stir our hearts and affections towards you once again, that we would have a resolve, a commitment to make the kingdom of God first, the priority to seek it first in your kingdom, your glory, your righteousness, and to know that all the things that we need for body or need to serve you will be added unto us. We pray, Lord, this morning, use this message to stir our hearts to be committed to live for you because that's what your death came to procure. To live not for our own ways, our own wills, our own ideas, but to live for you in our relationships of marriage and family and work and church and all the ways uh, that we relate to others. Lord, give us the grace now, we pray, through this message to be more committed, more zealous. May our hearts burn within us and may you help us to live for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.